Hello, and welcome to Essential Work, exploring the past, present, and future of jobs. This podcast brought to you by the Battle of Homestead Foundation. I'm Nathan Ruggles. Thank you for listening. Each week, we bring you stories and struggles, people and perspectives, interviews and commentaries, all on the world of work yesterday, today, and tomorrow. We look at the most important issues people face on the job through a unique lens of history and time and music. If you're a history buff, if you're curious about what the workplace of the future will look like, if you face your own challenges on the job, if you appreciate human-centered stories, if you like the context and perspective that helps you better understand our particular moment in time, if you enjoy how music can provide an artistic window into issues, this is the podcast for you. Here in our ninth episode, we are visited once again by our expert commentators, Rosemary Trump and Charlie McCullister, with our segment, Working Over Time, a periodic look at current events and news through that historical lens and a perspective of working people and organized labor. This time, we focus on the biggest current event right now, this presidential election. We'll take a look back as well as forward in this critical historical moment. And we now have here with us, with Working Over Time, longtime labor leader and SEIU organizer, Rosemary Trump. Rosemary, thanks so much for being here on the podcast. It's very good to be here. Thank you very much. Thank you, Nathan. And also with this, of course, part of this uh, dynamic duo we have here is former Labor Center at Indiana University of Pennsylvania director and labor historian Charlie McAllister. Great to be here. It's wonderful to have you both back. Wonderful to have you here at what is pretty a pivotal moment, not just here in Pittsburgh where we're recording, but for this country and I dare say the world right now with this impending election less than a week away. So we want to hear from both of you in terms of your views. Rosemary, I know you see a number of things here at stake with this selection coming I up. I certainly do, really, for all working people, whether here in the United States or in other countries uh, worldwide, because uh, really what the next president of the United States, who should be the world number one leader, should be, is going to have to face and find solutions for and to provide leadership for, number one, the global pandemic. I mean, the fact that uh, we're all, every person in the world is threatened by a virus that could seriously injure them or actually kill them. And number two, we've got a uh, global uh, climate situation where it threatens the existence of uh, our species and certainly uh, the health of our, our earth that we depend upon for food and water. And economic inequality is a huge, huge issue. And it, it, it has grown enormously in the last 40 years, where we have a super, super, super wealthy billionaires, a growing segment of billionaires, where the wages are stagnant for Anyone making less than $100,000, which is approximately 90% of the economy. And then that's been going on a while, right? That stagnation. Exactly. Since, since Reagan, since the whole attack on the labor movement and having President Reagan giving the signal to every corporation in America and every employer in America, it's open season not to have unions. And without unions, you don't have wage growth, period. And that's what's happened. And our current president once in a while talks about, well, we have growing wages. Well, if there are growing wages, and I'd like to see the statistics on it, it's only because unions are out there fighting and in some cases winning $15 an hour for the bottom sector. And that's the only way that we have wage growth. But we've really seen a lot of support, particularly from SEIU, for that $15 wage, right? Fight for 15 Absolutely. Oh, yeah. No, I'm very proud of SEIU, my union, and very proud of Mary Kay uh, Henry, that is the leader, the president of the SEIU, and the leadership that she has provided for that issue and for the uh, lowest segment of the economy and organizing the lowest segment, the janitorial healthcare segment, the nursing home, the domestic worker segment, many gig workers, 
In any event, uh, but that yeah, that inequality you were talking about, right? Being, so the the whole economic inequality it just keeps growing, and people are living paycheck to paycheck. They're having to borrow uh, and to rob Peter to pay Paul in order to make economic needs met. And uh, then, of course, you know, the whole systemic racism that we have to deal with. And so we have that whole issue of discrimination in terms of policing powers. And so it's only going to get worse because people can only struggle and try to fight for survival for so long without fighting back. And that's just that that is history. That has been the history of the world, that when you repress and suppress the rights of workers, that eventually they will say, I've had enough, and they will fight back. So we have very, very real issues that need to be dealt with. And assuming that the polls are correct, and all the recent polls are showing that there is going to be a change of administration, that Joe Biden has a very good chance of winning the presidency, and that there's a very good chance of even winning the Senate, as well as adding to the numbers in the House of Representatives, we have an opportunity to address those issues, and the only way those issues will be won is if labor is a part of those solutions, along with all the governmental leaders as well as the business leaders, where it's a tripartite effort to get together to figure out a plan of what needs to be done and to do it to solve the uh, pandemic because we have to keep a healthy workforce. And to keep a healthy workforce, workers have to have the right to be able to speak up at work and say, I need equipment, I need to work safely, I need time to wash my hands. And in unionized places, this is happening. But non-unionized places, it's still lagging. So the only way that we're ever going to be able to deal with the pandemic is to keeping workers safe so that they can keep their families safe so that we can stop the spreading of this virus. And uh, the way we're going to be able to do that is to have an opportunity to have the President of the United States issue an executive order that if a worker requests the assistance of training and education and, and advocacy by a union on the issue of health and safety at the workplace, they should have the right to do that. And I would assert that they do have the right to do that. They have a constitutional right to do that, that it, they have the right of speech and assembly and concerted activity, and they have it both under the Constitution as well as the National Labor Relations Act, and that they have protection under the law to keep themselves safe where they have the right to, to walk off the job and not be fired because they walked off the job because their health and safety was, in fact, threatened. So labor has an important role to play in the next upcoming administration, and I would say they should be a part of the transition team that Biden has so that they can bring their ideas as well as their suggestions for appointments to boards, to commissions, to the cabinet. There is no reason why a labor leader cannot be the head of the uh, Labor Department. Certainly. I, I mean, seriously, and we should. It's about time. Because we've, de- we've definitely had uh, a number of labor secretaries that were not from labor. <laughs> not exactly. exactly. Right? Um, or friendly to labor over, over time. But I do want to come back around to, before we talk about what the future may look like starting 2021 and what could happen, with a new administration. Charlie, if there's what you see from your perspective as some of the big stakes in this election right now. Well, absolutely. I mean, what we have seen in the last four years, and it's really a trend that goes back uh, to Reagan, but it has accelerated in a terrifying way, is the total destruction of the credibility of our democratic government and processes. And this has to be reversed and very vigorously. It all rests on the unfairness of the tax system, which has fed massive inequality 
that needs to be addressed right off the top. We need radical change in terms of our taxation system so we can provide for the whole range of needs. And what has happened as a result of starving the government, starving Social Security, starving many key areas of uh, working class life has been that we then have to, in order to maintain government, we have to sell off the assets of the people. And so we've seen privatization of public schools, privatization of highways and turnpikes, etc. The push to turn over public wealth to the private sector is just part of this whole extremely aggressive attitude that Trump has taken, that the only things of value are the individual and the accumulation of wealth, of power, and domination. And obviously, the labor movement is for the sharing of wealth, for democratic input and participation, and it's for seeing the common defense and general welfare. That's the purpose of our Constitution, and we've got to get back to that, and we've got to reaffirm it in a very vigorous way. So, Charlie, just to play devil's advocate for, sure. for a moment, but is, isn't the individualism and rugged individualism, you know, that's the historic lifeblood of this country, but what you're telling me is that we need to go back to something about this common good. So how do you reconcile those? Well, it's always been intention. There's no question about it. But what has come in the recent times is an enormous imbalance. What we saw in the Great Depression and Franklin Roosevelt and the New Deal was an effort to balance it out so that it certainly didn't take away wealth or power from the very wealthy. They remained wealthy, but they were trimmed back a bit, and their power was curtailed. That's exactly what we need to do. We need to reestablish a balance so that there is a healthy society. We have become so tilted toward the rich and powerful and their interests that we're losing the important things that serve the common people. And I mean, I think critically, I know that I think, I think Joe Biden is moving there, but we, in order to confront something like the pandemic, we really need, do need a universal health care system so you can track what's going on easily. It's not difficult if you have a, a unitary system that is uh, all in one database, et cetera, you can see what's going on instantly. That's what most civilized countries have. We need that kind of recognition that there are certain fundamental things that must be done by the public sector. And to be an effective public sector, we also need power at the workplace. Like Rosemary said, we need unions that are that participate in making decisions over the wages, hours, and working conditions, but also the I, where I see we need to go is to have unions and workers' voices in the direction of our economy. Because as Rosemary was saying, we have a terrible climate crisis. We have to take a huge ship that's heading in the wrong direction and turn it. We're only going to be able to do that with the adherence of masses of people, sensitivity to minorities, sensitivity to women's issues. We have to rebuild the confidence, the credibility of our government, of our democratic system, or we're going to lose it. We're on the verge of losing it. I mean, there is clearly fascism out there. This is what Trump has been really promoting. And this is the this is rug cutting time, as we used to say. This is when you got to really make decisions and do things that are going to have lasting impact. And if we don't, we are going to lose our democracy, going to lose our, our rights, and we have to, we have to get organized. And I, I agree with Charlie that I think he's making an excellent point because we have, for the first time in my lifetime, I don't know if it's happened prior to this, you know, my time, but when you have a president of the United States making uh, announcements that if he loses, yeah. that the system was rigged, that the mail-in ballots were fraudulent, that there wasn't any way possible that he could have lost, and therefore he's not going to give up power, that's dangerous. I mean, that is really anti-democratic. And it is on the you know, borderline of fascism, if not fascism. I mean, it's certainly authoritarian. And we cannot 
I, what's at stake here, talk about high stakes, is whether or not we have a democratic form of government from henceforward. Because at least in my lifetime, when there was a presidential election, somebody won, somebody lost, and the winner took office. And there was a peaceful transfer of power. Now it appears that armed thugs are being encouraged to come out and protect his right to remain president, whether he was voted in or not. And that's, we have to worry about that. And that's another thing that I think labor has to play a very important leadership role. There may have to be labor strikes over retaining our institution of democracy, as well as labor strikes to get rid of racism in America. I mean, so that's another thing that we have to be prepared for the next week, the next month, and take action. And it's every person, every person in America's responsibility to insist that we have a democratic form of government, that we go to the ballot polls, that the people, and that's what the Constitution says, the people have the right to determine its future through balloting. And we have that responsibility protecting that right and to insist that Trump leave office peacefully and that there be a transfer of power and that we utilize that opportunity to make the world a safer, better, more humane, more democratic society than what we've enjoyed in the last four years. You know, we hear that refrain, especially every four years, an election, that this is the most important election of our lifetimes, right? We hear that all the time, right? And that being said, (laughs) is it safe to say, based on what you both are describing here with this anti-democratic sort of language coming out of this president that is something you've not heard, at least in your lifetime, are we at a unique place here with this election in terms of the security and vitality of our democratic institutions? Absolutely. I mean, and the calling forth of people to take a stand against the decision of the electorate, the constant attempt to undermine the black vote and all votes, really, and the putting into question of the credibility of the most fundamental institutions of our government and history really block any forward progress. What they are asking Trump is and his enablers is to set up a permanent oligarchy of control where any attempt to oppose them or civil liberties or freedom of expression is seen as amounting to treason. It's a war culture, but the war is at home. The war is against those people, the the half of the country and more, who oppose the direction that we're going. And we are in a situation where we could have extremely bad consequences in the next uh, several months. Hopefully, uh, it won't happen. And it may well take, as I think Rosemary was saying, is that mass nonviolent demonstrations and taking to the streets, that's the way that progress, real progress. I mean, as someone who grew up inside the civil rights movement of the 1960s, and really the first political thing that I related to is the the sit-ins in Greensboro of 18, 19-year-old people saying, we've got to have a change. North Carolina? And, and so, yes, in North Carolina okay. and Greensboro. And this showed that people were willing to put their bodies on the line to advance and make progress for their people. And I think we're at a situation now where this thing cannot be allowed to get out of control. And it is massive, nonviolent presence in the streets, I think, is what will guarantee, we hope, a peaceful transition to a reasonable government and reestablishing the credibility and the effectiveness of government itself. I was shocked that I read an article about China. I mean, I know that people can question the numbers, but they're talking about that that in China, that where the pandemic came from, that the death toll is 4,600 people, one-fortieth of our death toll. And that's in a country that what, four times the population of the United States? Yeah, way more than us. I mean, the countries that have done the best are Vietnam, China, and New Zealand. 
Very different systems, but they're, all three of them are countries that have the credibility of their government. We have a government which is set against making any kind of rational approach to dealing with this, and we're seeing the consequences. I mean, it is raging all over the country, and out in the countryside, which the president was sure would never happen to his people out there. Well, it's happening everywhere. Viruses are not something you can just determine by political um, affiliation. Well, let's hope it doesn't come to that. I mean, but on the other hand, we really do need to be prepared should it come to that. Oh, yeah. And this is our 1932 election where we can make major change for those who are in need and those who work for a living and those who want to play by the rules and to function in society in a meaningful manner and earn enough through their skills and their talents enough to survive and to begin to address the issues of the future. I mean, including what we haven't talked about is the immediate future that's probably three to five years away. It's, you know, the coming continued automation of our work. And of course, right. the pandemic is driving a lot of employers to look at ways in which to automate Keep because everybody of at the home. problem yeah. of not having workers. <laughs> yeah. And I think that idea of how the pandemic has changed the life for workers now and in the future, we need to do a whole program on that. But I do want to take, just as a quick note, you had mentioned 1932. So you're saying as a 1932 in terms of an election that ushered in Franklin Roosevelt. And the New Deal. In the New Deal. And so the the Build Back Better is a 1932 election. (laughs) (laughs) And so labor has a tremendous opportunity that we can legislate the kinds of labor laws necessary for people to be able to organize once again, that we can update our labor laws, that we can update our health system on how we deliver health care, that we can update our educational system once again. Absolutely. So these are all important objectives to make us a strong society, a, a growing society, a growing economic society, and hopefully a more joyful society right. where we can have humor again and be able to function without the worrying about whether or not there's a task force on pandemic viruses out there. Because I'm told that, you know, yes, this coronavirus is one of possibly many that may be out there to come in the future. So we have to prepare for that. And we see when we don't, we're being penny wise and pound foolish, as they say. I mean, we're, we're trying to save money, but we end up spending trillions of dollars in lost uh, economic opportunity, as well as the toll on uh, mental health and physical health. So it's time for a new direction. And I think this election gives labor an opportunity to have that new direction, just as they were intimately and creatively involved in coming up with Social Security and Medicare and unemployment compensation and ridding us of child labor and standardizing the eight-hour day and overtime and paid sick leave and paid holidays. This is an opportunity for, once again, to labor to be able to address the needs of society uh, from both a economic standpoint as well as a mental health standpoint, where we can make an opportunity for people to have something as as simple as an enjoyment (laughs) and recreation. Absolutely. Right. And truly, we need that because one of the things that isn't talked about, I mean, when Trump talks about, oh, you know, we're getting so many jobs back. Well, look, look what's happened to the entertainment industry. There are no jobs back in theater or in live performance or live music. There are no jobs back. In, in terms of the travel industry, really. I mean, and the whole airline industry is threatened. And restaurants. So a whole year is be, of quality of life is being lost for the entire world. And we need a leader who understands that and is willing to bring in all voices 
to solve this important issue. And labor has a tremendous voice to offer to have that happen. I do want to um, talk more about what this post-election next year world could look like. I do want to circle back just real quick about the election. It just occurred to me when you were describing, you had mentioned 1932 and the New Deal, and you were describing things like Social Security and those things that were established for the New Deal. It's interesting because that era of FDR was bookended with the end of fascism, which we were just talking about a moment ago. So a lot there in the mix in terms of moving to something, a a new New Deal or a, a new way forward. But you talked a little bit about what labor needs to do both before this election day and perhaps after the election day, depending on what happens in Trump's response. Charlie, did you have anything to add in terms of what you see in this election moment that needs to happen or should happen or, or could happen? Well, obviously, it's a moment of high tension and concern and anxiety, and, and that just has to be faced and has to be worked through, and we have to be ready to mobilize. But I really do, I, I want to go back, though, to the underlying thing, which a lot of the reasons people think that these pandemics are going to get worse is because of the general deterioration of the world's environment and ecology. And that one of the things I think that's so important for labor is to understand, like was happened in the New Deal, was the importance of the Civilian Conservation Corps and giving a place for young people. We may well be facing a very serious unemployment situation here for young people. And the government really needs to look at this. I know it's being talked about in England and other countries about hiring on young people, giving them a reasonable like VISTA and Peace Corps and pooling the resources of young people who are desperately concerned about the future of this planet, but bringing their energy, their intelligence, their imagination to bear on these issues of environmental restoration. We have got to restore the earth. The earth is in bad shape. Read daily about collapse of fishing, decline of species, terrible fires that kill millions of living beings. And this has got to stop. It has got to be reversed. And it's going to take a lot of work. And we're going to need organization. We're going to need people who step forward and provide the kind of vision plus the kind of organization and participation of are very intelligent young people around the world. And we need people that can work in partnerships. This whole being the leader of the free world and the the greatest ever and all that, we got to work in collaboration. That's how World War II was won. That's how fascism was ended. We have to be able to work all around the world with all the people who are facing this crisis. This is the greatest unifying force in the world is the environmental crisis. And it is something that all over the world, young people in particular, are very conscious of, and this is a way to give, I think, everybody hope is that to harness this in a open, uh, democratic, participative way. That's the future. That's the hope. And you say that is potentially a unifying cause. Yeah. But unfortunately, I think in this moment, both in this country as well in this world in ways that we are seeing divisions. Absolutely. And disunity. Right, competition and going after resources and thinking Mm -hmm. that the only way we can uh, get ahead is by unregulated growth and just going out and grabbing what's left of Mother Earth. That's not the way forward. We need to turn that whole attitude around and start putting back, start using the curative power of the Earth to help us get through this. But continued focus on domination and exploitation is not going to get us through this. And that's what Trump stands for. That's his whole message. Is there winners and he's at the top and everything that he can get and grab for himself is okay? Uh, That's not a way for the world to go forward or for our children or for our grandchildren. And Rosemary, what do you think in terms of finding that unity and what would need to happen to move together both in this country and beyond in terms of finding that unity? 
Well, I think that, you know, one of the things that I really appreciate about Joe Biden's candidacy is, is he's talking about specific ideas for reaching out and helping people. Whereas, you know, you have our current president that's on 60 Minutes in a uh, interview that decides that he's asked too hard of a questions like, well, what's your plan for the next four years, he gets up and walks out because he doesn't have a plan for wait, the next four years. Wait a minute. You're, are you saying the presidents are supposed to be able to take hard questions? <laughs> what? What are, you, are we going back to another former president that was just after FDR? <laughs> uh, Truman and the buck stops here? Is that oh, what you're talking go. about? <laughs> I mean, the, I, I just could not believe it. I mean, he was asked a simple question like, well, what are you going to do for the people of this country and in terms of policy worldwide and blah, blah, blah. And he gets up and walks out because it was too hard of a question to answer. But, you know, there's Biden who's willing to say that in terms of helping labor, one of the first things I'm going to do is to, when we have governmental contracts, we're going to bid them out to American companies. My only caveat is I would hope that labor's able to convince him to only bid them out to American companies that, A, is either abides by prevailing wages and standards, or B, has no anti-union animus either, that they're willing to not only live up to the letter of the National Labor Relations Act, but the spirit of the National Labor Relations Act, which says right in it, we encourage unionization here in America. So I would hope that that's the caveat that Joe Biden puts on, but at least he's willing to talk about bidding work government contracts out to American companies before other countries. And the other thing is that, you know, he's talking about bringing back enforcing the labor standards. I mean, wage theft is a huge issue for a large segment of our economy. And the fact that Joe Biden is willing to talk about, once again, having the government go to the aid of workers that when they contract their work for a particular wage and benefits, that they're paid those wages and benefits, as well as he's talking about having health and safety conditions for those workers. That's laudable. And that's specific. And that's something that can be done immediately. It doesn't have to wait for any legislation. It can be done immediately to begin unifying all of us here in America, as well as having a spillover effect in terms of showing other countries in the world what they should be doing vis-a-vis their workers as well. So those things would be at the top of your agenda as far as a worker agenda for next year for a new administration. Absolutely. And, and, and to, of course, to legislate the PRO Act. And the PRO Act will have a tremendous And if we get the majority in the Senate through the Democrats and the majority in the House of Representatives, we should be able to have the PRO Act go through fairly quickly, which will streamline the right of of workers to organize into unions. So that act primarily talks about the right to organize. Protect the right to organize, PRO Act. Protect the right to organize. And what it will do is it promotes sectoral bargaining, Well, just the same way you had once upon a time the whole auto industry bargaining together or the whole mining industry bargaining together or the whole building trades associations bargaining together. That's what sectoral bargaining is. And that's the way it's done in Europe. And we'll have the opportunity to have representatives on corporate boards so that we can talk about how to make ourselves more efficient and transition into automation We'll be able to talk about the investment. I mean, I'm happy to know that gas and oil companies now are finally deciding that their future is not in gas and oil, but in fact, in solar energy. And we should promote that. And workers should be involved in promoting that and transferred with their existing and better wages and benefits from one industry to another. And there's no reason why that can't happen as well as to deal with this whole issue of gig workers and independent contractors, which has blossomed over the last 40 years and needs to be dealt with so that those gig workers have the security eventually of a pension and social security and health care. Which, by and large, they don't have, at least the equivalent of a normal, I should say, a 
an employee as opposed to a contractor, right. correct? Exactly. And Charlie, you, you hit upon something there too that in terms of in Europe of the way that they have this sectoral, sectoral bar- bargaining. Basically, what it is, is that government, labor, and business sit down and set guidelines for existing industries, a common floor for everybody. And what that does is it means that companies compete by having better management, by having a better product, by having better research, but not by driving wages down and trying to undercut each other. And by putting the major forces in a, a economy together at the table, and this we had it during World War II. We had basically uh, sectoral bargaining, and we had people at the table making these decisions. But it is a way, definitely, to take the whole competition of driving down wages out of the equation, which is what they've done in Europe, and it, it's worked for them. Well, and it's that's happened here that sort of competition between states in this country and between this country and other countries in terms of driving down those wages, right? Sure. Absolutely. That's the name of the game here is drive down labor and increase profits. That's the name of the game. That is not the name of the game in more civilized parts of the world where it's a question of providing really good products at a re- at a cost that can maintain themselves around the world and and keep their living standards at a acceptable rate for everybody in the society. That should be the goal where everybody's interests are concerned, not just the people who accumulate capital. So to me, what this represents is to build back better with union labor, union benefits, union working conditions, union health and safety security. That's our opportunity with this election. And that We need to get out the vote. Yep. And once uh, Tuesday's election's over, get out in the streets to make sure our vote is recognized and appreciated and legally found to be enforceable. And if it means a change of government, then by golly, we need to do whatever is required and necessary to make sure that our vote counted. Well, and I hope that fighting to make sure that the votes are counted is something we can all agree on <laughs> in, in, in a democratic-minded country, Let's right? Hope. Right. Let's hope, right? Right. Let's hope. That we can find some unity on that as well. Charlie, do you have any, any additional final thoughts in terms of this election or what you would look forward to for next year? Well, I keep coming back in my head to, to John Lewis and to the example uh, of the civil rights movement of the 60s and Martin Luther King and John Lewis and Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, etc. It really, nonviolent change is what lasts because you, once you start into the shooting and the killing of each other, then we've got name there are hundreds of uh, places we could name that that's has happened and turned into absolute tragedy but if we keep our eye on the prize that is democratic involvement that is engagement that is equality that is justice and we mobilize and act nonviolently those things are achievable and they last when people have won these things in a nonviolent mass way they become part of the society and people accept it. But if we get into shooting at each other and killing each other, that's a downward spiral that never ends or and doesn't end until one side or the other is totally exhausted or dead. We've seen it. I could go into dozens and dozens of examples in modern times where that is what has happened. We do not want that here. And I think the the, to me, the the great lesson of the 20th century was the civil rights movement and the nonviolent change that took place there against this a system that was absolutely determined not to let it happen. But it happened because tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people made personal decisions and sacrifices and risk, and it changed our country. We still got change to do, but I think the way forward was exemplified by John Lewis, Martin Luther King. And folks talk about, when you hear this idea of banding about, which if you would have said this a decade ago, you would have, couldn't have imagined it, right? This idea of a civil war. I mean, but that implies a violent struggle, 
which we saw Absolutely. 160 years ago in this country, right? So, right. Rosemary, do you have any thoughts on terms of what is going to be required in this struggle moving forward? Um, any final thoughts? Solidarity. <laughs> I mean, essentially, that's really what it's going to require. Solidarity, commitment, and cooperation between uh, labor government and business. I mean, they can't afford to shut us out for another 40 years. <laughs> and it's time to permit labor to be, once again, a major policymaker and leader of the voice of the majority of people in this country. And we've done it well in the past. We do it well today. We just need the opportunity, fair opportunity, to be able to do it in the future. And you said they, they can't afford it anymore. I think it's safe to say that after 40 years, people aren't going to take it anymore. That's right. right. Exactly. <laughs> Precisely. Well, thank you both very much. It is always a pleasure. It's always wonderful to get your insight and perspective from your experience and knowledge. And we look forward to having you back once we're beyond this election. And we Amen. can talk more about what's to come, but with that understanding of where we've been. So right. thank you. Uh, thank so you. Uh, Rosemary, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Rosemary Trump, longtime labor leader and organizer and labor historian and, and writer. Charlie McAllister, thank you as well. Thank you. Great. Thank you. So thank you both and thank you, our listeners, for joining us here with Working Overtime. Next up, Lurie McCullough will be joining me, and we will be talking about the latest from the Battle of Homestead Foundation, as well as hearing Larry's song selection of the week. And this is Nathan Ruggles here back with you to finish up this episode with the latest news from the Battle of Homestead Foundation and our song selection for this episode. Now, both of these would not be possible without Battle of Homestead Foundation communications manager and our podcast music man, Larry McCullough. Larry, thanks for being here. Well, thank you. It's great to be here. So the latest from the organization, what's going on right now? Well, we are done with our programming for 2020 with the speaker series, looking for ideas for 2021. And in the meantime, besides this podcast, we have Charlie's Monday Marker, the video series that takes you to, well, really just all around Western Pennsylvania, wherever history events happened and their historical markers. And then Charlie McAllister tells you exactly what happened, the whole story. Well, the last one, well, actually, during the month of October, we've been celebrating Indigenous Peoples yes. Month, and there's actually quite a few historical markers in the Pittsburgh area that relate to that. Episode 18 that just came out this week was Gayasuda and Washington, the Seneca chief Gayasuda and George Washington, who first met in the 1750s when Washington was working for the British Army, basically, during the French and Indian War, and then they later on met again. And Charlie's Monday Marker talks about the history of the affairs back then between all the empires that were converging on this part of the world and what people were trying to do to figure out who was going to get what land. And very famously, George Washington visited this region in that era, right? Yeah. And so when you do go up to Mount Washington and Grandview Avenue and you see that sculpture that's been created by James West uh, with Guy Sud in Washington, that has real historical background. And the current episode of Charlie's Monday Marker tells that whole story. So in this case, it is recognizing not just a marker, but a, a statue, a work of art as well then. Oh, yeah. And what's uh, on the docket for uh, next week with Charlie? Well, he's going to fast forward to the 20th century and the 1919 steel strike in Braddock, Pennsylvania. And Braddock going to the immediate suburb here of Pittsburgh, and certainly a lot of history out of that region industrially too as well, right? Yes, and there's always been a lot of contention about working, especially in a major industry, about what rights workers have and what they don't. And the 1919 steel strike was uh, one of those times where people got very public about it, and Charlie will tell you all about it. And so the organization is planning for lots of great new programs and this past season, with everything moved online to these free Zoom events, had a good reception, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. The irony is, is that with the online, people can't actually meet in person, but we literally get people from around the world 
that can tune into the event. And so the knowledge gets spread and more people get introduced to the topic and, and get informed. And we are anticipating that at some point in the near future, the organization will be getting these events, which were hosted on Zoom, up on the YouTube channel for yes. the organization. So if you didn't catch them uh, when they originally took place, you will have an opportunity in, in the future to do so. And there was a lot of exciting topics covered. Absolutely. And there's so many well-informed speakers. Again, some of them probably wouldn't have been able actually to come to Pittsburgh and deliver this in person, but through the uh, online capacity, they were able to do the event from wherever they were. So you can get on the YouTube channel, subscribe, or Larry takes care of our Facebook page. Get on there as well to get all the latest. And when that announcement goes out for those uh, past events to be up on YouTube, you'll catch that. While you're at it, head out to the website as well, battleofhomestead.org. And uh, while you're there, think about a donation. If you support the organization, you're also supporting this podcast. So if you like what you're hearing, that's your opportunity to do so. You can also join as a member as well. And in terms of giving us feedback, please give us a call. Leave us a voicemail at 412-326-9435 or send us an email, comments at essentialworkpodcast.org. Let us know how we are doing or give us an idea what you'd like to hear in the future. Also head out to our website, essentialworkpodcast.org. You can find all of our prior episodes and head out to Apple Podcasts. Give us a nice review and let other people know what you think about this podcast. Encourage them to listen. Also, some thanks going out not only to the program committee with the Bethel Homestead Foundation that works hard to support this podcast, but also to a number of folks without which this would not be possible. That includes... Angela Bachman, who helps us out with uh, audio engineering when we need it. She's at thatsoundgirl.com. Our logo is by Brittany Sheets. Her website, bsheetscreative.com. And we have an original theme written and recorded by Jason Kendall. He's at jasonkendallproductions.com. So to wrap up this episode, as we do, Larry always picks out a great song selection for us, inspired by the episode. And I should say that just listening to the prior conversation there with Rosemary and Charlie talking about how right at this very critical moment prior to election, a lot of change going on, the the talk of change, we're in an era of change, on the cusp of change. Workers are concerned. Workers are dissatisfied. They're looking for something better. And we also touched on the New Deal and Franklin Roosevelt. And while, Larry, you've got a song selection here that uh, really speaks to a lot of those things, I think. Absolutely. It's called This Is What the Union Done. And uh, it was recorded in 1940, a live field recording for the Library of Congress. Uh, it was written and then sung by an Alabama coal miner named Uncle George Jones. And he was 68 years old at the time. And he actually still carried a bullet in his leg from when he was shot during a coal mine strike some, some years earlier. And he wrote the song in the late 30s, just after the United Mine Workers of America really began to revive. And that was obviously due to the Franklin Roosevelt Organization, when I think for the first time, there was actually federal recognition and legalization of the collective bargaining process. So this song is his tribute to the Roosevelt administration's support of the labor movement. Now, the person who recorded this was a fellow named George Corson. He was born in the Ukraine in 1899. His family moved to Brooklyn, New York when he was about seven years old. Then they moved to Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. Okay. He got a job in 1922 as a reporter for a newspaper in Pottsville, Pennsylvania. And then he just on his own began collecting folklore that was related to all the coal miners he was interviewing for articles. And by the time he died in 1967, Corson had written several books on the folklore and folk music of coal. Coal Dust on the Fiddle, Minstrels of the Mine Patch, Pennsylvania Songs and Legends, Black Rock, Mining Folklore of the Pennsylvania Dutch. He even started the Pennsylvania Folk Festival in 1936 to popularize some of the music and folklore traditions he was encountering. And he spent virtually all his life trying to get America's folklore and the people who, who sustained it and created it, the respect that it deserved in academic circles. All his papers today are in the American Folklife Center of the, the Library of Congress. But uh, as I say, he recorded really, really thousands of songs. And this one in particular, This Is What the Union Done, is on uh, an album. The Library of Congress has been reissuing some of the, the field recordings from the 30s and 40s. Okay. 
And that was a monumental feat in itself, trying to transcribe all these things and get them. These things were originally uh, recorded on metal cylinders and then really early magnetic tape. And the recording equipment was huge. It actually had to be hooked up to uh, automobile batteries. Um, <laughs> usually because a lot of the recordings were in extreme rural areas. For instance, the uh, Zorro Neil Hurston. It was featured on our, our your song selection for our last episode, we should say. Exactly. You know, when she's out there recording in rural Florida, this is how it was done. You know, they didn't really have the equipment uh, today. And so also the selections were pretty short because there was a limited amount of, of material on the technology that could really preserve and transfer it. So you have to heft around big equipment for a small recording. And it's the opposite today, of course. <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. And, and then, of course, they would record several cylinders. And this, this song, like I say, it by Uncle George Jones, apparently he was a very noted songwriter in his area. And he wrote just a lot of songs about current events. This one's interesting. It starts out, in 1933, when Mr. Roosevelt took his seat, he said to President John L. Lewis, in union we must be. Lewis, of course, was the head of the United Mine Workers. Come, let us work together. Ask God to lead the plan. By this time, another year, will you have the union back again? And then the chorus is, hooray, hooray, for the union we must stand. It's the only organization protects the laboring man. Boys, it makes the women happy. Our children clap their hands to see the beefsteak and the good pork chops steaming in those frying pans. <laughs> and then he goes through. And really, you know, it's, it's very, again, very simple language. That obviously people in rural Alabama or really anywhere at the time would have immediately related to. And he talks about just the impact that unionization actually has on people's quality of life. The fact that their just basic freedoms are enhanced. They can get better jobs. One of the verses says, now when our union men walk out, they have the good clothes on their back, crepe de chine in the fine silk shirts and brand new Miller block hats. Uh, and they talk about when their wives go to church now, they actually have more than one dress. And, you know, a lot of that obviously is, uh, you know, maybe stereotyped imagery, but the reality is, is, is. Uh, in that day and age, it was men that were going down into the, the coal mines, right? Well, it was, yeah. And it was just the idea that something as simple as forming a labor union could really make a massive, massive improvement in people's just basic lives and, and health and everything. Um, so that's what so this song celebrates. And again, it wasn't anything that ever probably got on the radio or was known probably more than 10 miles from where it was recorded. But like I say, it ended up in the Library of Congress and 80 years into the future where we are today, we're still listening to it and we're still thinking about what the union can do. And, and fortunate that George Corson was out there doing this work to capture mm -hmm. these recordings, which otherwise they wouldn't have been recorded, right? Absolutely. Corson, there were a whole bunch of people all around the country doing it. And eventually they got, Corson got hooked up with the universities who then were able to kind of help sponsor some of this research. But again, this was just the technology came at about at a certain time and the recording technology is primitive as, as it was to what we might think today. And there were people like George Corson. Uh, a lot of them immigrants came over and this is how they, they were just fascinated by this country and its diversity. And they wanted to just document it as, as uh, much as possible. When that's so remarkable, too, that someone that was not from here was mm -hmm. an immigrant who came here. Yeah. If it wasn't for him, we would not have this history, right? Yeah. We would not have this folklore, right? This folk music. And going back to from last episode as well. Yeah. Zora Neale Hurston. Yeah. 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 I mean, African-American, someone whose family was enslaved in this country, yet mm -hmm. without her, Again, we our history of this country would not have been preserved. Yeah, a lot of people like Corson and Zora Neale Hurston, that they really were able to document the communities that they knew. Mm -hmm. And that was a really important thing, too. A lot of people think, well, this folklore stuff, you know, it, it's either trivial or it's just something that ivory tower academics do. But really, it was what it really was the popular culture of our time before television, mm -hmm. often before movies. And it was what people did to just kind of really, really talk about society and their lives. It wasn't so much just pure entertainment. It was really a social commentary about what was going on. And the fact that we had people 100 years ago that were actually actively collecting this is, is pretty remarkable because it's a good comparison to what our popular culture is today. Well, and now, Larry, tell me, is, is it fair to say, too, that this music, even though it may not have been heard back on the radio, 
so much in the 30s or the 40s, still, I imagine, was very influential for musicians that came later, which even feeds up into today in terms of our musical styles and culture. Oh, absolutely. Because Uncle George Jones was functioning as a musician songwriter in his small little corner of Alabama. That was happening all around the country. So it's not that the music was interchangeable, but there were all sorts of people doing it. And as the media got stronger, and certainly after World War II, and there were national radio programs and more people recording, people like Pete Seeger would hear this and they would learn it, and then they would record. And people like Woody Guthrie and Lead Belly ended up in New York, a media capital, and they would start popularizing their media. But yeah, there always have been people really everywhere just singing about what's going on. And that's really how the tradition was anchored and was able to just feed into what we're hearing today. Excellent. So um, as far as this song, where can it be found? We're going to have a bit of it here, but where, where can they find information about it? Well, uh, the American Folklife Center, Library of Congress, they've been putting out reissues of a lot of this field material of all kinds, all the ethnic and folk music from the early part of the 20th century. So there actually are several albums that have been recorded and they are for sale. So this song is available on the album Songs and Ballads of the Bituminous Miners, issued by the Library of Congress in 2010. And there's more information about this song on EssentialWorkPodcast.com. So here's a short audio clip of This Is What the Union Done, recorded in 1940 by George Corson, written and performed by Uncle George Jones. In 1933, when Mr. Roosevelt took his seat, Said to President John L. Lewis, in union we must be. Come, let us work together as God to lead the plan. By this time, another year, we'll have the union back again. Hooray, hooray, for the union we must stand. It's the only organization protect the living men, boys. It makes our women happy, our children clap the hand. The CCP stick and the good folks job steaming in those frying pan. And the president and John L. Lewis had signed a decree. They called for me. 2021 has been a year of transition for all of us. At the Battle of Homestead Foundation, they have discovered new ways to advance their mission of heritage, education, and social action. They expanded their educational outreach to include a weekly online tour of people's history locations through the Charlie's Monday Marker video series, as well as far-reaching discussion of social and economic trends with the podcast Essential Work, the Past, Present, and Future of Jobs. They presented seven timely online public panels featuring nationally known authors and historians. Topics included workforce shifts from heavy industry to healthcare the women's suffrage movement, uprooted immigrant neighborhoods, protest songs in today's civil action movements, the 1921 Battle of Blair Mountain, historical roots of today's social philanthropy, and Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania's world-famous city steps. They established a professionally archived labor history collection, thousands of documents, photos, recordings, and remembrances of labor history spanning decades. They co-sponsored the Blair Mountain Centennial in West Virginia, honoring a long-neglected part of U.S. history with a landmark Labor Day weekend of events. They built a new and more accessible website, which you should check out at battleofhomestead.org. They did all this with help, the essential support of all the individuals like you who enjoyed the programming appreciate the hard work of the citizens, workers, educators, and historians that make it happen, and value their mission to preserve, interpret, and promote a people's history focused on the significance of the dramatic labor conflict at Homestead, Pennsylvania in 1892. In 2022, they'll present a new round of thought-provoking programming. Membership, along with special donations, is essential to their success. Annual membership is only $30, $20 for retirees or the underemployed, and just $10 for students. Join now at battleofhomestead.org. You can also choose to contribute at any of a number of special donor levels, and donations are tax-deductible. 
Membership also provides multiple free admissions to a variety of historical museums and sites in the greater Pittsburgh area. Check out the details at battleofhomestead.org. As this singular year comes to a close, while we still may have much to be thankful for, we also all see the urgent necessity of doing more to share our progressive labor history to a wider audience and inspire a new generation of activists and organizers. Your membership and engagement ensures that the Battle of Homestead Foundation will continue to do just that. Show your support today at battleofhomestead.org. In solidarity, BHF thanks you and wishes you good health, positive spirits, and both peaceful and joyous days ahead.